Welcome to another episode of Inside Your Miami Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Henri Ford, the Dean and Chief Academic Officer of the University of Miami Middle School of Medicine. And today I am excited to welcome a really, a truly brilliant faculty member, friend, and, and one of my prize recruits, Dr. Azizi Satius. He holds many titles, so let's go through them because I have to give him all the due respect that he deserves. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's also Associate Director for the Center for Translational Sleep and Circadian Sciences. And the latest addition to his title, Blocks, Interim Chair of the Department of Informatics and Health Data Science at the Middle School of Medicine and Director of the Media and Innovation Lab. Is that enough? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let me add a few more um, accolades that you received you know, recently. Sure. You've been named one of the 100 most inspiring black scientists by Cell Press. I never got there. <laughs> and also, you are an Amazon Educator Champion. You received an Amazon Educator Champion Award, one of only 10 such awards. Uh, award. So you are simply brilliant. Well, thank you. And, and, and thank you. And, and I know you're quite humble, but for our audience, please share your journey and, and how you became the associate professor and interim chair of the Department of uh, Informatics and Health Data Sciences. Well, thanks again, Dean Ford, for having me. And, um, you know, all those accolades, I have to give credit to just an incredible um, family and network and, you know, great leaders like yourself who have given me the wonderful opportunity to be able to shine. Um, but it's not more about shining. It's about service. My life has always been committed to service um, because that's, you know, you know, very important. You know, I think for us, how I was raised, I was raised in Kingston, Jamaica. I'm in an inner city community I'm raised by five women. So I know exactly what it's like to be in the have-nots. And I was blessed enough to be given many opportunities to go to different schools um, where I saw the distinct differences between the haves, the have-nots, mm -hmm. and the have-mores. Um, and I committed my life. At first, I wanted to be a politician and realized that I care too much about what people thought about <laughs> me. So, you know, I'm one of those folks where if my approval rating is less than 50%, I wouldn't be good with that. So <laughs> politics was not for me. So I chose science. Um, and in many ways, um, there have been several different stories, you know, watching my own grandmother who raised me you know, suffer from many different, um, you know, medical conditions. She's now deceased, but, you know, I, I pay a lot of tribute to her and my mom. Um, and there's something my grandmother always taught me. Um, growing up in a kind of a poor inner city community, she said there are two things that level all human beings, and it's death and education. We all have to die. And education will bring you in certain environments and circles that you would not have imagined. So I chose the route of education. And with that, um, I went to an all boys Catholic school in Jamaica called St. George's College um, and did, I think, well. Um, and it so happened that, you know, either serendipitously or through faith, um, you know, our president of that high school um, said, we have some really talented guys here, an all boys school 
why aren't you guys looking to go to college? And I said, well, we are, but you know, we don't have the wherewithal. Mm -hmm. And he set out a vision. And that's when I started realizing the importance of vision and mm. strategy and tactics, where he connected us with all the Jesuit Catholic schools and colleges and universities. And I got into a school named College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Got a full That's ride. quite a good school. It's a, it's a good school. And I, I tell people this all the time. You know, my mom couldn't afford to send me to university locally in Jamaica, but it was much cheaper for me to go to school in the States. And that's a blessing. And so I've lived my life in a way that I want to kind of pave that way for others so that it is easier for them. And went to Holy Cross after Holy Cross, went to University of Dallas, um, where I did my master's and I went to Fordham um, to get my PhD um, and then did a few stints. Um, did it at um, a community college called Hustlers Community College in the South Bronx, which if no one knows, it's considered one of the poorest congressional districts in the entire United States. But I love the beauty and the pride of that community, especially that institution. About 70% of these students are first-generation college students. Majority of them are immigrants. Um, English is a second language for them. And I learned so much about myself, and I really developed. I learned how to become a better communicator, a better educator, and did that and um, you know, realized that I needed more for myself and my students. I was one of the few faculty there that tried to set up a research shop at a community college, and we had a lot of students you know, doing research in, in public health and found this wonderful program at NYU School of Medicine. Um, yeah, pride, um, and it's for underrepresented minorities. And I tell you this, and uh, it might be, people might think I'm exaggerating or kind of self-effacing. This program taught us how to submit grants for NIH and increase productivity. So, so how yeah. did you link up? So here you are, you got a PhD <laughs> in psychology. Yeah. And you are teaching yeah. in a small community college. Yeah. And then you're trying to do research, and then there's something in NYU. So what, what's, yeah. tell me about that yeah. linkage. Thank mm -hmm. you for asking that. Um, I felt I wanted more. I, I felt I wanted more for myself. I felt I needed to do more. I'm a person of deep faith, and I felt that my life was called for a higher purpose. Not that being at a community college wasn't great, but I felt that there was something more for me. and Even though you were making it, a difference. It, I was making a difference. Thanks for that. I was making a difference. Um, and just spoke to a few faculty members who I said, I'm looking for some research experience. I think I'm okay at research, but I need the training. Got it. And they said, well, the NIH usually has these summer training program. Just look it up. And I've said this, and um, my current mentor, Dr. Jordan Jean-Louis, who is now here at the U, um, I applied for this. And no one should say, you know, don't follow what I'm about to say, um, because I am a sleep researcher. I was up at 2 a.m. looking for opportunities, and I found this opportunity. I kid you not, this is why I love, you know, um, Dr. Jean-Louis very much. They were moving from SUNY Downstate, um, where they were, to NYU. They had the Pride program. Apparently, um, the date had passed, um, but it really didn't pass because technically they didn't switch over the website, the date of the website. So they had to honor that. I applied literally a day before the deadline um, at 2 a.m. 
And because of his character, I was lucky number 13 because they already had their full cap of 12 people. Wow. Um, so I was the last one to enter. You know, the good book says the first shall be the last and the last shall be the first. <laughs> and that's kind of how I got to NYU, did very well there. And they said, you're kind of okay. Do you want to come hang out with us and do a postdoc? So I had to move from an assistant professor to become a postdoc. And I had to convince my wife that was a good move. <laughs> and we just had a baby and, um, you know, she's been just very supportive. And that's how I ended up at NYU and just allowed me to blossom and spread my wings. They just discovered how talented you are. <laughs> Dr. Jean-Louis is no, <laughs> no slouch. He knows how to recognize talent. So, um, so tell us about uh, the interest in uh, sleep studies and, and, and how that came about. Great question. Um, I oftentimes say that what makes me, I think, an authentic sleep researcher is because it's something that I struggle with. Mm. So I'm a credible messenger. So I'm not sitting from an erudite position where I'm telling people you need to sleep because that's what the science says. I am coming from the perspective that I know exactly how sleep can have a deleterious effect on your health, on your livelihood, and every other facet. And in many ways, that's what I've committed to. The lack of sleep. The lack of sleep, okay. absolutely. And, and, and I've seen how sleep has been great as well, you know, where it okay. increases productivity and just my ability to innovate and to be creative. I feel that when I sleep, I am just bouncing off the walls. People might think that's being a little bit too manic, but um, I have a ton of energy and sleep provides that. And so that's how I got into sleep and realized that sleep disparities um, was a real thing. That when you look at racial ethnic minorities, that looking at certain communities, that sleep is not just a behavior. It's an imperative. It's something primordial. Everything emanates from sleep. Um, I always say, start your day with sleep. Sleep is an investment. And I realized that many communities didn't have that messaging. And how were we going to be able to understand how sleep impacts different health outcomes and spread the good news or the gospel to these communities? And that's what I've committed to um, in my career as a sleep specialist. Fantastic. So we were fortunate to recruit uh, both you and your mentor uh, from NYU uh, to the University of Miami Middle School of Medicine. And uh, you have studied, uh, you and your mentor have studied the Center for Translational Sleep and Circadian Sciences. So tell us a little bit about that and what you are studying in, in some of the studies uh, showing some racial ethnic disparities in, in, in sleep. I oftentimes say translation is our first name. Mm -hmm. um, and sleep and circadian is our middle and science is our last name. What does that mean? It means that everything that we do must be translated from the basic science, from bench to community. That's what we focus on, trying to understand how does sleep impact um, brain functioning? How does sleep impact heart health? How does sleep impact the various organs? How does it impact our immune function? And particularly, we have you know, focused on um, health disparities, particularly sleep health disparities. Um, Dr. Jean-Louis, we always tease him like he is dubbed as the godfather of sleep health disparities in the community and you know he can speak for himself but his many accolades you know um, speak to that and validated the fact that he saw this the importance of bringing this important knowledge to the community that if you don't get enough sleep or if you are a shift worker um, and if 
you're a mom and you just gave birth and your sleep, you know, circadian rhythm will be disrupted. And how does that impact your risk for diabetes and to be a good mom? Um, those are important things that people need to understand. People think that sleep is a luxury. And, and, and we don't believe that in many ways. We believe that um, you know, sleep is a social justice issue as well. There's so many different factors that are driving that. And, and would you expand on that? I mean, how does sleep impair or affect one's diabetes and why should it, one ethnic minority be more affected than, an other, than other group? So when you look at the rate of, let's say hypertension, which is you know, elevated blood pressure, that um, in a, almost half the world um, has elevated blood pressure. And what we do know is that a significant portion of these individuals are not aware that they have this condition and other half, they um, don't have it controlled. So the question then is, who does this affect most? And when you look at it, it's racial, ethnic minorities, low income individuals. So when you start peeling the layers of that, the question is, what's the science behind that? The science is this, when we go to sleep, that there are significant processes that occurs. Sleep is important for homeostasis, which is to ensuring that the biological environment is kept equal. Um, it is important for energy conservation, and it also has some brain health impacts and consequences as well, memory consolidation and the like. And a lot of the work that we're doing in terms of dementia has shown that the toxic proteins called beta amyloids, which are implicated for risk for dementia, actually gets cleaned out or washed away during nice. sleep. Ah. And so when you look, coming back at, you know, let's say hypertension, when we sleep, that there is a natural dipping in our blood pressure. Um, this is what happens. Glucose level goes down, blood pressure dips. What we have found is that there's a significant amount of individuals, particularly people of African ancestry, who actually don't dip. And what happens is that the body is in this constant state of arousal and alert, the sympathetic activation. And so when you go through a day when your blood pressure is elevated and you go to sleep, which is when your blood pressure should go down and your body should rest and it's still high, then your body is in this constant state of arousal. And therefore that can cause significant wear and tear. And when that wear and tear occurs over a period of time, then you have you know, significant you know, you know, you know, disintegration of significant biological processes. You have wearing of blood vessels. You have potential risk for strokes in terms of you know, infarctions and the like and, and, and lesions. So you can and start- accumulation And accumulation of beta amyloid. Accumulation of beta amyloid as well. So it, it, sleep is the one elixir, the one thing yeah. I've always said, Sleep helps to clean us, sleep yeah. helps to protect us, and sleep is very important. That's fascinating. How was your sleep? I, that, I know that, I shouldn't that, be asking. That, that, that's fascinating. You know, I, was, I, I grew up um, in a Christian family, grew up in the church, and yeah. always my family always reminded me that, uh, you know, God created heaven and earth, but on the sixth day, after the sixth, he, he rested after yes. that. So, so sleep was important. Absolutely. Um, so... Talking, continuing with the center, you recently received a grant, $3.8 million, uh, to look at uh, obstructive sleep apnea and, and disparities. So tell us a little bit about that. And, and when, why does the NIH give you $3.8 million? That's an exciting study. Uh, we, we're, I'm, so, I'm so excited about this study. 
So this study um, is looking at the link between sleep apnea, which is um, partial or full blockage of airflow when someone is asleep. It's oftentimes characterized by um, snoring and these repeated episodes of apnea and hypopnea is when the person should be sleeping and they lose all sense of consciousness because there is significant blockage in the airflow and then the oxygen level drops and then there is a natural reflex in our bodies to wake up to increase the oxygen level. And you, you can imagine if someone goes through that 30, 40, 50 times in a given hour, based on what I said earlier in terms of how it can cause significant stress on the body. And so one of the things that we do know is that there are significant treatments like positive airway pressure, oral appliances, and there are some surgeries now that can help to alleviate that condition and make it better. Because there's been short studies that have shown that people with sleep apnea, particularly uncontrolled sleep apnea, greater risk for a whole host of cardiometabolic conditions and strokes and dementia. And Consistent with what you were just what I said saying. Before. So we said, okay, let's try and understand how is it that we can increase um, folks to adhere to, um, to these solutions. And what we've studied is that when we look at the healthcare delivery pathway of these individuals, it's complex to get into a sleep, you know, to see a sleep specialist and to get care. It's complex already in the healthcare system. So what we've done is that we have looked at patient navigation and tried to find ways in which we can increase awareness of risk and then navigate people through peer health education and using the best digital innovation, something that you know, I care about very deeply, whereby we can use technology and text messages to understand what the barriers are to prevent um, you know, treatment or seeking treatment and adhering, and we navigate folks. So this particular study does many things. And in that same um, context, who do we know about the sleep patterns for Florida residents? And Yeah. Uh, so, so actually, we did a piece, actually, where our school was featured by NBC, I think, a few um, months ago, where the CDC showed that approximately 50% of folks in South Florida have reported that they don't get sufficient sleep, meaning individuals who get seven to nine hours of sleep. When you peel that so layer, That's what we should be getting. We should be getting seven to nine hours um, on average. And when you peel the layers, Dean Ford, and see which communities are at greater risk who don't get sufficient sleep, these are historically under-resourced communities. The socioeconomic status of these, um, um, of, of these communities, rather, are quite um, you know, low. And so there is a relationship between socioeconomic status, social determinants of health, noise pollution, poor air quality, um, uh, a wide variety of different things in terms of your living conditions. If your home environment or living environment or resident, residential environment is not conducive to sleep, you are more likely to suffer from poor sleep. And it's not just looking at sleep duration, it's the quality of your sleep, the efficiency of your sleep. If you have a sleep disorder, um, and it, it really spans the gamut. So sleep, sleep is not just this monolithic thing where you're just looking at duration only. Tell me about the mailbox and yeah. how that comes into play and everything. Oh, so when COVID hit, um, we had three NIH studies where we were trying to understand multi-level determinants of insufficient sleep, looking at biological factors, genetic factors, behavioral factors, 
psychosocial factors and environmental factors. And the way in which we wrote the grant, we were going to bring people to us and we we're going to go to their homes. Um, and when COVID hit, everything came to a halt, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, reflexively and reflectively thought about how can we still continue to engage folks in the community? So we called them and said, hey, do you want to come to our health system or our health facility? And they're like, no way, I'm not going coming because of COVID. And I had this idea for quite some time to create a remote health monitoring solution. And this is the mailbox. So within the mailbox, um, we have several devices. We have two smartwatches. We have a smart ring. We have an ambulatory blood pressure monitor. We have a smart scale. We also have an ear quality device that looks at a wide variety of ear, um, you know, um, a particulate matter. And what we said is we wanted to capture the individual from a 360 perspective. But we recognized, Dean Poe, that there's a significant digital divide because these studies primarily focused on African-American Blacks and Latinos in urban and rural areas. And so we teamed up with companies like T-Mobile to provide each person a smartphone as wow. well as a MiFi. Because all of these IoT, Internet of Things devices, allow us to capture streams of data continuously for seven days for 24 hours. So we're capturing that because we believe that we need to really understand everything about the individual within context. And that's what the mailbox allows us to do. And, you know, I'm and gonna... how do you process this information and how does that exactly. turn into No, that's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic question. I think what we're trying to do first is to better understand. We call ourselves data hunters and data gatherers, right? Um, because we have to be able to co collect a wide variety of different data. What we're doing is that we're putting all of this on a cloud um, and cloud, cloud infrastructure where we can use what we call virtual machines to then create what we call biological algorithms of each individual. When we do that, we can then start to process what we call personalized ideographic signatures of individuals. So here's our vision. Our vision is that we would know so much about your biochemistry, right? We'll know so much about your biology and your biometric signals, what we call bio, digital biomarkers over a period of time, that we can start to predict when you're about to get a headache. We can start predict when you're about to get a cold. And this is really at the heights of precision and personalized medicine. That's what we're aiming for. We're building that roadmap for that. All right, I'm a little dense. Just, just help me understand how that's going to, how, how you're going to capture just when I'm about to get ahead. So let's say you see shifts in the person's glucose and you look at shifts in temperature. You look at other shifts in activities. You look at, you know, their continuous glucose monitoring. When you start to triangulate all of those, we can start creating deep learning predictive models to understand Whenever Dean Ford has these triangulated, you know, endpoints, it is 80% likely that he or he will have a headache or, and I think that's kind of one thing, but we're not, we're not just leaving it there for in terms of prediction, because prediction is one thing. What we will be able to do then is we can start to tell you to anticipate and provide solutions and remedies ahead of time so that you don't have to get the headache or if you are about to get sick, that we can provide some lifestyle management and solutions as to how to do it. And we've demonstrated a little bit of this in our AI-based work already where 
we've created different profiles of individuals who are at risk for stroke. And what we said is, let's look at the different, you know, how people sleep. Mm -hmm. You know, again, people get seven to nine hours, should get seven to nine hours. But I oftentimes, as a researcher, I think about my single mother who worked a full-time job and who went to school full-time. And I've seen this in the community. I go to the community and tell them, you got to sleep seven to nine hours. It's like, get out of here. Are you kidding me? I work two jobs and I have three kids. How dare you come and tell me something that is just so discordant with my lifestyle? I'm trying to take care of my kids and I will lose my sleep to take care of my kids. And I think as researchers and scientists and clinicians, we need to do more for these individuals. So what we were able to demonstrate is, okay, it's okay if you can get six hours, but here are some other areas that you can shift. These are the types of foods that you need to eat. This is the amount of activity and exercise that you need to engage in to counterbalance your risk for a stroke. And I think that's where we need to provide more dynamic types of recommendations instead of a one-size-fits-all approach. That's where we think personalization goes in. And that's how we better engage our communities and the patients that we serve. And I think that's how we restore the covenant that so many of us have sworn to, to do no harm and to help the community. Well, this is fantastic and, 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 and perhaps a good place uh, for us to take a break because we have so much to talk about. And, and, and certainly in the next part, in the second part of uh, this um, podcast, I want to focus a little bit on uh, the Department of Health, uh, Data Science and Informatics. It would be yeah. my pleasure. And we'll bring this session to a close. And this has been Inside Your Miami Medicine. I have been fortunate to really learn so much about sleep <laughs> and the re sleep requirements from none other than Dr. Azizi Satius, the interim chair of the Department of Informatics and Health Data Science, but also uh, associate director of the Center for Translational Sleep and Circadian Sciences. So thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It was so yeah. much fun being for it.